Luke chapter 6. Luke chapter 6, beginning in verse 17. And we'll read all the way through verse 26. Hear now God's Word. (coughs) And He came down with them and stood on a level place with a great crowd of His disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and the sea coast of Tyre and Sidon who came to hear Him and to be healed of their diseases. And those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured. And all the crowd sought to touch Him, for power came out from Him and healed them all. And He lifted up His eyes on His disciples and said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of heaven, or kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven, for so their fathers did to the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. Let's pray together, church. Father in heaven, we ask now in the preaching of your word that we would come ready and willing and that to sit at your feet. And would you by your Holy Spirit speak truth and life into our hearts. And by it would we be changed and transformed into a people who resemble more and more like the Savior Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray, Amen. Jesus, after having selected His twelve apostles, descended down the hillside overlooking the Sea of Galilee and proceeded to deliver what would be the greatest sermon ever preached. This sermon is often called The Sermon on the Mount. It was first called thus by the early church father, Augustine, over 1,600 years ago. But this is a divine masterpiece. It was Jesus' great manifesto for life in the kingdom. Now, you'll notice that this sermon here takes us to the end of chapter 6, which means that we will spend a considerable amount of time here, not just for weeks, but at least, at least two months, focusing much of our time in the Beatitudes. But for today, I want to simply give an introduction and an overview of the Sermon on the Mount. Now, if we think about the Sermon on the Mount, it is more commonly referenced to be found in Matthew's Gospel. Matthew chapters 5-7. through Where Matthew provides a lot more material compared to Luke. And there is actual discussion on whether or not Luke chapter 6 is of the same sermon there in Matthew chapters 5 through 7. There are a lot of differences. For example, as I just noted, Matthew uses three chapters, while Luke only uses one. Matthew, in his account, he provides nine Beatitudes, and you'll notice Luke here, only four. But Luke, he adds here a, a list of woes following his Beatitudes, which which are not found in the Gospel of Matthew. 
Another difference is that Matthew records, blessed are they with every beatitude. Speaking in the third person plural. Whereas Luke says here, blessed are you. But maybe the biggest difference is that Matthew's account begins by saying that Jesus seeing the crowds, He went up on the mountain, while Luke says that Jesus came down the mountain. Luke chapter 6, verse 17, notice <coughs> that Jesus came down with them and stood on a level place. And so are Matthew and Luke referencing the same uh, sermon. I believe so. I think so. What makes the Gospel accounts very unique is that each author wrote with a different perspective and with a specific purpose, but all in harmony with one another. And they didn't merely copy from one another, but they wrote in accordance to their own measure. I think Luke here is giving us, uh, giving us a, a condensed and abbreviated version of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Summarizing what He has gathered from the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, remember that while Matthew wrote to a, a broader Jewish audience, Luke wrote to his friend Theophilus that he may have certainty the things he has been taught. And, and so Luke, he felt he didn't need to expand, but rather condense. And while Matthew noted that Jesus went up the mountain to the place where he would deliver his sermon, Luke tells us that after choosing his apostles, he descended down to that very same place, I believe, described as a level place there in our uh, Bibles. I have an ESV version. It says a level place where it probably was a plateau upon that mountain to deliver his sermon. And so two different perspectives of Jesus' journey to His pulpit. But here's the thing. Whether they are the same sermon or not, isn't really much to be worked up over. That's not really of real importance. It's because as you know, Jesus, He preached His message more than once in various times and various places. John tells us at the end of His Gospel that there were many other things in which Jesus did that were not written down which all the books in the world wouldn't be able to contain. You see, more than the place on that mountain is the meaning. What is its meaning? What does the Lord Jesus want to teach you and me in this sermon on the mount? And beloved, there is a lot for us to learn. And I hope that together we will grow into greater maturity, into personal holiness into more trusting faith where we will become closer into the kinds of citizens that Jesus wants us to be in His kingdom. But this sermon will, will challenge us. This sermon will confront us with things we tend to disregard. It's because in this sermon, Jesus, as it were, is going to evaluate the deep and hidden recesses of our hearts. And He's going to open a lot of secret doors and He's going to expose what is truly taking place in our lives. Notice here, Jesus begins with four blessings followed by four woes in verses 20-23. through 23, Which means this sermon is going to both encourage us and admonish us at the same time. Where He gives us these wonderful realities of our faith. 
And then he gives us a series of these grave warnings. And we'll see that the four woes or lamentations here, they actually correspond to the four blessings. Look at verse 20. Blessed are you who are poor. Verse 24, but woe to you who are rich. And we'll see that pattern throughout. The blessedness of the hungry in contrast to the lamentation of the fool. Weeping in comparison to laughing. Persecution to praise. Jesus will teach us the blessedness of His kingdom and the lamentation of the world. And that will challenge us. Because we tend to think that blessedness actually comes from the lamentations of the world. But then notice after that section of blessing and woe, we'll be confronted in verses 27 through 36 on the extent of our Christian love. And you see, the issue for us here is not that we have any difficulty being loving, but it's a matter of who we love. Our love is very selective, isn't it? We like who we like, and we don't like who we don't like. And it's going to be our natural tendency to fight with every fabric of our being to justify how we feel. But Jesus says here, love your enemies. Love your enemies. How is that even possible? You might be saying this, I can't even love those people who annoy me. How am I able to love my enemy, the person who seeks to do me harm, the person who wants to take advantage of me? There's no way. How can I love that person? And the answer is you can't. And I can't. That is until Jesus opens our eyes to see something. Something of ourselves. Who we truly are apart from His grace. Utter wretchedness. Vile heinousness. In other words, until I see myself as the most unlovable person, yet by God's grace, loved without end, can I begin to love like this? This is why we need to make our way to the mount, Christian. This is why we need to listen to Jesus' sermon. And what we're going to find is that this is something we just can't disregard. It's because this is the kind of love that characterizes those who belong in His kingdom. And if this is the kind of love that those in the kingdom possess, then what does it say if I am completely without it? It's going to be challenging. It's not going to be easy. And then notice Jesus is going to teach us about our judging of others in verses 37-42. through 42. Not that we cannot judge. People often misunderstand. Judge not, they say, or you will be judged. No, we, we are called to judge and call to judge a lot of things, but we're called to judge rightly and to judge clearly. Jesus has given us clear commands as to responding to other people's sins. What Jesus is going to say to us here is that we cannot judge with a hypocritical eye. And truth be told, much of our judging is, is done in this kind of way without any kind of self-examination. We are quick to judge. Yet Jesus is going to show us that what we despise and condemn in other people, we, at times, we do the same. But if we humble ourselves, church, if we humble ourselves, we'll find that before we observe the splinter in others, 
will realize that there is a log jam in our own if we humble ourselves. And so we'll be confronted in that area as well. And then notice Jesus moves on to the topic of fruit trees in verses 43 through 45 to reveal something about our true hearts to get to the bottom, which is the root. Are we good trees or bad? Well, how can you tell by its fruit? And you see, where we'll find the the truest profession of our faith is in the practice of our faith. So He'll give us these living pictures of fruit trees. And then notice verse 46-49 through of rock-solid houses where we'll be asked how firm is our foundation. And Luke, notice, he he closes Jesus' Sermon on the Mount by laying before us the question, chapter 6, verse 46, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? In other words, how will we respond at the end of the sermon? Will we listen to the words of our senior pastor? Will we seek to do His will and obey or delay and refuse? Beloved, this sermon is going to expose us. And if we are humble, that will be a good thing. That will be a good thing. That even the rod of Jesus is meant for our healing and for our good. Now, that's a brief overview of the Sermon on the Mount. To just give us a a broad view of the forest before we get to each individual tree. Maybe you might have been thinking, wow, Pastor Danny, you're going really fast right now. But that's just a broad view of the forest. For the rest of our time, what I'm going to do is, I want to give you some guiding principles that we need to know to help us to understand Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. If we're going to grasp Jesus' sermon, we need to know a few things that will be of help to us. And I say this because while the Sermon on the Mount is the greatest sermon ever preached, it's the most misunderstood and misapplied sermon of all time. Notice its contents are one of the most quoted words from the Bible, not only by Christians, but also by non-Christians. The the unbelieving world has some sort of familiarity with the Sermon on the Mount. If someone slaps you on the cheek, turn to him the other also. That's in Matthew's Gospel. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him too. And what is their conclusion? What's the conclusion that comes from the world? That Jesus was a great teacher and nothing more. Which shows you how they got the Sermon on the Mount all wrong. And that leads us to our first point here. This sermon, number one, is for believers and not unbelievers. Now, it's not to say that an unbeliever can't listen to this sermon. Absolutely not. We'll find that there were a host of them there on the mount. But rather that the Sermon on the Mount can only be applied to those who have been changed by God's grace in the heart. Apart from the Spirit's regenerating work, the Sermon on the Mount will not be what it was intended to be. Let me explain. There are, these are here, these are not a a list of 
actions and principles and maxims in which a person can accomplish and abide by in order to be a Christian. And that's how this sermon has oftentimes been applied and rather falsely applied. Here's what I must do to be a Christian. Follow Jesus' teachings. Okay, if someone strikes me on the cheek, I'll turn to him the other. I'm a Christian. No, you will find yourself despairing and without the blessedness in which Jesus gives. The Sermon on the Mount is not a step-by-step manual as to how to enter God's kingdom. Rather, the Sermon on the Mount is a description of those who belong to God's kingdom. There's a difference. Jesus is giving us a picture of what a child of the kingdom looks like, a portrait of the Christian life. Of one who is a son and daughter of their heavenly Father, a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ. I want you to notice something here. Look with me in Luke chapter 6, verse 17. And notice the different groups of people here that had gathered on that mountain. Verse 17. And He came down with them and stood on a level place with a great crowd of His disciples. Remember that prior, Jesus had selected His twelve apostles after praying all through the night. And so we're told that with His twelve, He came down and He was met by a larger group of His followers. But then verse 17 tells us that there was another group and a great multitude of people from all over Judea and Jerusalem and the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon who, who came to hear Him and to be healed of their diseases. And so here was Jesus situated on the side of the hill amongst His disciples and a great crowd healing people of their infirmities and diseases. But notice that when Jesus began to preach, look at verse 20. And He lifted up His eyes on His disciples and said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. You see who Jesus addresses? His disciples. Those who have made the decision to follow Jesus. These are not words to show you how a person can become a disciple, but rather words that describe the life of one. Now I want you to see that even in describing the Christian life, this sermon doesn't begin by telling us as Christians what we need to do. You notice that here? Uh, This sermon, it, it does not begin by telling us as Christians what we need to do. Nor does it begin by telling us what we are to be. But this is the grace and beauty of the Sermon on the Mount. It begins with these Beatitudes. The sermon begins by telling us who we already are. That we are blessed. Jesus doesn't say, blessed you might be, or blessed will you be, if you do these things. No, He says, blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Jesus is saying, if you're in My kingdom, if you're My disciple, this is what you are. And what a blessedness that is. And this is so important for us to know about the Christian life. 
This is Christian living as it were, 101. It's not that we do to be, but that we do because we are. In the Christian life, being is the foundation for doing. And it's not the other way around. Martin Lloyd-Jones was a London preacher and one of the greatest in the 20th century. And in his classic work on the Sermon of the Mount, he wrote this. He wrote, quote, We are not told in the Sermon on the Mount, live like this and you will become a Christian. Rather, we are told, because you are a Christian, live like this. This is how Christians ought to live. This is how Christians are meant to live. And I think this is how the apostles, I think they learned this from Jesus. I think they learned this from Jesus. And so they so structured their epistles in such a manner. If you ever turn to the epistles, you'll find that very order. This is who you are. This is what Christ has made you by virtue of His salvific work. Therefore, this is how you ought to live. That's how the epistles, many of them are written. The Beatitudes that open the Sermon on the Mount begin by telling us who and what we are. And not by telling us what we need to be. And that confusion has bound so many people in the chains of legalism. And this is how the Sermon on the Mount is often read in the church. And it only drives people into despair and ruin because they find the demands of the sermon too much for them to bear. Like when Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, verse 21, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. And they find it exhausting. They find it tiring. Well, why? It's because they find so much failure in trying to follow it. In order to be. And the reason for that is because they've got the order mixed up. They're attempting to do in order to be and they're finding that with all their efforts, they will never be. But here's the thing, church. We can only be. Not by our own efforts. But we can only be. But by grace and grace alone. And that through the person and work of Jesus Christ and Him alone and no one else. You see, Jesus Christ lived and died and was raised that I might live the Sermon on the Mount. That you might live the Sermon on the Mount. You see, apart from Him, the, the Sermon is not possible. He must enable me and that by saving me. There's a story in Luke chapter 10 of a lawyer who came to Jesus and he asked Him, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? You might remember this story. And Jesus answered back with a question. What does the law say? How do you read it? And the lawyer, he responded, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said back to him, You're right. You've answered correctly. Do this and you will live. All the lawyer had to do was to keep the two great commandments. 
Loving God and loving his neighbor. And in a sense, isn't that what we see here in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount? We see those two great commandments fleshed out. Do this and you will live. But herein lies the problem. And this is what, the, this is what Jesus wanted this lawyer to see. No one can. Apart from Him, no one can. Only the sinless Son of God can. As Scripture teaches us in Romans 3.20, For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in His sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. In other words, we can never be saved by keeping the law. We can never be saved by keeping this sermon. Not because there's anything wrong with the sermon, but because there's something inherently wrong with us. This sermon will only begin to apply to us when we realize that the only one person, that the only one person who truly lived it is Jesus Himself. He lived the Sermon on the Mount and in perfect obedience to His Heavenly Father. He was the one who was truly poor in spirit. He was the one who hungered and thirsted for righteousness. He was the one whom people hated and reviled and spurned. Listen to 2 Corinthians 8-9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though He was rich, yet for your sake He became poor. So that by His poverty, you might become rich. And so He offered up His life on the cross for our sin, for our transgressions. But He who died was raised to new life that we might now live that Sermon on the Mount. Non-Christian, this is not... This is not about simply following Jesus' teaching, but resting in Him as your Savior and Lord. Being found in Him and His righteousness and that of no other. If you're not a Christian, turn to Him. Listen to His voice. Repent of your sins and trust in Him to deliver you from your sins that you might enter into His kingdom. That's who this sermon is for. Those in the kingdom. Now the rest of the points here will be a lot shorter, but here's the second. The second point that we need to know to help us understand the sermon. Notice that this sermon presents to us a life that is so in contrast to the world. Notice that the values of the world here in this Sermon on the Mount are reversed. What Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount are countercultural. It is the poor who are blessed and the hungry and those who weep and mourn, uh, the world would respond with absolute confusion to such a thing. The poor are impoverished. The poor are needy. The poor are at a disadvantage. The poor possess nothing. The rich have everything. The rich have all the power. Now we need to be careful here. Lest we think the amount of money in a person's bank account or the lack thereof constitutes the blessing. Both have led many people astray with the false gospel. 
On one end, you have the prosperity gospel. And on the other end, you have the social gospel. Both false gospels. Jesus is talking about something deeper, more substantial. I don't want to get too much into next week's sermon, but notice again here, the world's ideas are flipped upside down. Rather, it would be more accurate to say that the Sermon on the Mount puts things right side up. That would be a better way to say it. Well, the question is, why? Why is there this great reversal? And the answer is because the values of the world are an absolute contrast and devalue the values of God. They are in opposition to one another. Which means, which means that for those who reside in His kingdom, then it means that there will be a conflict. And Jesus addresses that conflict, doesn't He? Look at chapter 6, verse 22. Blessed are you when people hate you. Well, why are they going to hate you? It's because they're living, you're living like you're in the kingdom. That's why they're going to hate you. Blessed are you when people hate you and exclude you and revile you and spurn you. And here's why. Notice verse 22. On account of the Son of Man. Which is to say, church, living in the kingdom is going to put you at odds with the world. The way you talk, the way you think, the way you spend your money, the the way you relate to others, the way you respond, and so on and so on, will be utterly different than the world. You see, being like Jesus is going to make the world hate you. And hate you because the world hates Him. Last Sunday, we talked a little bit about Peter. And remember that Peter was the first to be named among the list of apostles and we saw his description. Every time we see the list of apostles, we see, we see that it says, Simon, whom the Lord named Peter. Peter was given a new name. Peter was given a new identity. But this is what Peter really struggled with. He wanted to have Christ, but without the cross. Wasn't that Peter's problem? Peter wanted to have a Christian life without the opposition and without the persecution. And that was made evident in his denials. As the Lord was taken away to be crucified and as a young girl recognized him to be one of his, he said, I don't know the man. And he said that three times. I don't know the man. Well, why? He did not want to suffer pain. This was his struggle. And yet as Peter drew near to the end of his life, he wrote a letter He wrote a letter to other Christians scattered abroad who were either suffering or about to go into suffering. And he said this, he said, don't be surprised. Don't be surprised at the fiery trials that come upon you as though something strange were happening to you. Peter, of all people, he says that. And you know what Peter says there in 1 Peter? He says, rejoice. Rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's sufferings. And then he says in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 14, he says, if you are insulted for the name of Christ, Peter says, you are 
blessed. I don't think Peter forgot Sermon on the Mount. He, he never forgot his master's words from the Sermon on the Mount. He always remembered the Sermon on the Mount. He says, if you are insulted for the name of Christ, blessed are you. Peter finally got it. He understood what it meant to live in Jesus' kingdom. And he doesn't consider it a lamentation like he used to, but rather as a blessing. Now here is what happens as we live in Jesus' kingdom and share in His sufferings. We find ourselves becoming more and more like Him. We grow further and deeper into His likeness as we grow, and as we grow into greater faithfulness in li- living the Sermon on the Mount, we grow into greater likeness to Him. This is what it means to become more like Christ. It is to live the Sermon on the Mount. He's the most blessed one. It's in Him that we will experience every spiritual blessing. This is what life is like in His kingdom. It is to be blessed. Now thirdly and lastly, and I'm going to make this one short as we close soon. What does it mean to be blessed? What does it mean to be blessed? Pastor Dave read for us Psalm chapter 1, which began, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked. What does it mean to be blessed? This is how the Sermon on the Mount begins. <coughs> it doesn't mean, it does not mean to be happy. It doesn't mean to be happy. That's not the appropriate definition of blessedness. Because when we're talking about being blessed, we're not talking about mere sentimentality. Yes, the idea of blessedness contains the idea of happiness, but it's so much deeper. Now, would you turn with me as we close here to Numbers chapter 6. Numbers chapter 6. We often read Numbers chapter 6 to close our worship service. We did so last week. Numbers chapter 6, verse 24. This blessing here in Numbers chapter 6, beginning in verse 24 through 26, and you'll notice it contains three lines. Three lines. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make His face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up His countenance upon you and give you peace. This benediction uses a literary device called parallelism where the second and third lines are really restating the first. Ultimately, these lines tell us That blessedness is not just being happy. That blessedness is not just being happy, but being brought into an intimate relationship with Almighty God. And so much so, that He sets His face towards you in the refulgence of His glory. 
How is it that the holy and almighty God should turn His face towards me in great pleasure? How? Shouldn't He shun me? Shouldn't He turn His face away from me? A wretched and godless sinner? Yes. The reality is we should be cursed. That's the reality. But you see, in Jesus Christ, we are blessed. In Him, He sees us with His face and His face so shines upon us. Christian, that's not just happy. That's something indescribable and otherworldly. But that's what we need to know. Not that we will be, nor that we might be, but that we are blessed. We are blessed. And so church, may we then so live as those who are. Let's pray together. Holy and Almighty Father, what an overwhelming privilege to be blessed. Blessed beyond measure. Blessed beyond degree. That You have blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. May we know more deeply the magnitude of such a grace. And we thank You for leading us to the mount. And we ask that there You would continue to teach us and grow us and bless us. We confess that we often fail to live out who we really are. and We fall into looking more like the world than sons and daughters of Your kingdom. Lord, rather than living right side up, we live upside down. Forgive us for our sins. May we look to Christ, the Blessed One, who lived the sermon completely, perfectly, without sin. And may we know the blessedness of being in Him. In the name of Christ we pray. Amen.